You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute. Sometimes we hear about things in history that are unbelievable, but plausible. But how can we prove that these things actually happen? Well, sometimes we can't, but that doesn't stop some people from trying. Walk the aisles of any supermarket. Doesn't take long to start noticing brands that are specific to that store. Often referred to as the generic version of a popular product, where do these things come from? You've probably come in contact with food that seemed weird or foreign to you at some point in your life, but would you eat something that is 50,000 years old? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, when it comes to like history or science or something like that, where there's a lot of experts who tell you things like, hey, it works this way or this happened, like they've devoted their life to studying something. Is there anything that like you know, because it's been told to you by experts, like it's pretty much consensus, but you just sort of don't quite buy it. Maybe even if it's just like 10% of your brain, like there's just a little bit of doubt still there about it. Honestly, dinosaurs. Because <laughs> they existed? You, well, well, yeah. I mean, like you go to <laughs> so like the Smithsonian, for example, you go to the Smithsonian, you get to see the, a bunch of dinosaur bones, especially the big T-Rex. So you know they were real. I thought you were about to go on like an unhinged rant about how like there were no such thing as dinosaurs. <laughs> like the, the the bones are all like government placed, you know, <laughs> lies or something. Seriously, man, like picture a T-Rex walking at you. You really can't. Well, Dave, we're going to be talking about something along those lines. We're going to be talking about an invention that was written about a long time ago, but has never necessarily been proven but people have tried to prove that it was plausible. So it's like this really unique, interesting middle ground of history. So we got to go all the way back to ancient Greece. We're going to be talking about a guy named Archimedes. The Greek mathematician Archimedes is one of the most famous minds in history. He's responsible for calculating pi. He created calculus proofs 2,000 years before calculus was invented and first proposed the principle of hydrostatics. But past the mathematical breakthroughs, Archimedes is also famous for his inventions, most of which we know about because historians wrote about them. A lot of what we know comes from the Romans, who weren't necessarily unbiased. Archimedes lived in a city called Syracuse in Greece, and it took the Romans two whole years of placing it under siege to actually capture it. One of the reasons it took so long is because evidently Archimedes went straight mad scientist and invented all kinds of death-dealing machines to keep the Romans at bay, including, apparently, a giant iron claw that had to be operated by hundreds of people that was capable of picking up entire Roman ships and then plunging them into the sea. But among all the inventions, one has taken on status of legend in history, one dubbed the Archimedes Death Ray. According to historical records, the death ray used mirrors to reflect sunlight like a laser beam at Roman ships and set them on fire. Roman historian Galen was the first to write about this more than 350 years after the siege had ended. And since early accounts never mentioned it, the existence of it has been really tricky to nail down. 
Some historians will tell you it was probably just pure myth or an exaggeration. But despite this, there have been many attempts to prove or disprove whether or not it actually existed. One of the main ways to go about this is to try to recreate it yourself with tools that would have been available at the time. The Discovery Channel show Mythbusters gave it a shot twice and failed both times. Then a group of scientists at MIT took on the project in 2005, and although they did manage to set a wooden ship on fire, it took 10 minutes of direct contact on a motionless ship with the beam of light being concentrated in one spot, something that obviously wouldn't have happened to moving Roman ships. In 1973, a Greek engineer assembled a version of the death ray that actually did set a series of ships on fire from about 160 feet away. Then most recently, this year, 2024, a 12-year-old student named Brendan Center in Ontario, Canada, built a scaled-down version, which won him some awards, although his model ran into the same issue. Setting fire to a moving ship proved implausible. Maybe the best argument against the existence of the Death Ray is the fact that it wasn't used again in later battles. Archimedes biographer Sherman K. Stein writes, Had the mirrors done their work, they would have become a standard weapon, yet there is no sign that they were added to the armaments of the time. But still, Dave, the legend persists, and to me, this is an interesting example of how history works. You have this story that people really want to be true, and it's plausible, but there's a lot to sort through. So the only way we can prove or disprove it, unless we just find one, is to try to build it, which we can sort of do, but it doesn't really prove anything. So it just has to exist in this weird middle ground. It's that messiness of studying the past, and to me, that's what makes it interesting. I love these hilarious medieval weapons. Like a Trojan horse, was that real? Probably like, not. Did it, did it work in the way that I... Th- yeah, like, like imagine a Trojan horse. Oh, they see this big thing outside their gate. Someone's left us a gift. Let's pull it in. They pull it in through the gate and then, ah, a bunch of warriors jump out. We'll open it up tomorrow. We don't need to do that tonight. <laughs> When I was a kid, like, I remember this moment distinctly for some reason. Like, I guess it was formative in my mind. You know me so well, you, you, you'll, you'll agree probably. that. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's you. That's you. But I remember going over to a buddy's house, and he asked me if I wanted something to drink. I said yes and asked what my options were. He listed some sodas, and even though I've been soda-free for a decade now, shout out to my no-soda drinkers, keep the faith, baby. Back then, I loved Dr. Pepper, man. Like, Dr. Pepper flowed through my veins. So that's what I asked for. I said, yeah, I'll take a Dr. Pepper. He said, sure. But Jay, when he returned, he did not have Dr. Pepper. He had Dr. Perky, a.k.a. <laughs> the generic brand Dr. Pepper that was sold, I believe, at Walmart back in the no, day. No, no, no. That's a, that's a generic brand. That's a generic brand of a generic brand. Oh, so <laughs> Dr. Perky's like three levels There's underneath Dr. Thunder. Dr. Thunder's the, the meat of that sandwich. <laughs> you know, you got to go down another level. So these things were like 30 cents a can. But Jay, obviously, I was, I was disappointed, uh, to say the least. But what's your life experience with generic brand things versus name brand things? I love buying generic brand things. That's like pretty much the only thing that I buy because I walk into the store and I have one goal and it's to save as much money as possible. And so I'm looking at them like, now nah, those Doritos are a dollar thirty. These Doritos are, you know, a dollar ten, even though they're the Walmart brand. They're, they're going in the cart, especially if I go alone. Like if I go alone, it's real dangerous. 
Like, but you know, I get home and we start unloading stuff. My wife's like, what, why did you get this type? Why did you get this type? But then she looks at the receipt and it's like, now you understand, you know, it added up over time. So, <laughs> I mean, it's hard for me to argue with you, even though I totally disagree. <laughs> no, you're super judgmental about it. Anytime you like come to my house, you're like, what, why do you have the, why do you have these? Why do you not have those? It's like, well, they're like 40 cents more. So what <laughs> well, are you going to do? Jay, whether it's the long list of generic named cereals, like fruit spins, which is probably what you get instead of fruit loops, or drinks like Mountain Lightning instead of Mountain Dew, it doesn't take very long wandering around in your local supermarket to find what we used to call generic brand goods, but now refer to as private label brand items. So today we ask and we answer, where do these things come from? First, let's talk about what a private label product is. It's the cheaper version of an item that a retail chain sells exclusively in its stores. And in fact, some private labels are actually just named after the store, like Kroger's Kroger brand items or Sam's Club, Sam's Choice. Other common ones not named after the store but unique to the store are Great Value, that's Walmart, and Good & Gather, that's Target. Some stores, like the beloved Trader Joe's, well, all the items in Trader Joe's are basically private label items. These items are always cheaper than the brand name that you know, typically in the 40% range and very widely in quality. Private label items require no marketing dollars, usually have cheaper packaging, and provide the store with a better profit margin. But Jay, here's the thing. Almost all private label items are not made by the store that sells them. Most are found at trade shows, like the Private Label Manufacturers Association trade show in Chicago. Here, companies can find vendors with products to acquire for their private label offering. Need a pasta sauce? Right over here. How about a chip that looks like a Dorito but isn't a Dorito? This way. Companies acquire the product, put their own labeling on it, and boom. So who, you may ask, makes things like Kroger brand peanut butter? Well, it's the great secret of retail. Both retailers and manufacturers don't want you to know. In fact, in some cases, the actual brand name also creates the generic product. In this case, it would be like Jif Peanut Butter also making the Kroger brand peanut butter. And why not, when you think about it? Because at the end of the day, Jay, it's actually a way for companies to make more from different customer bases. You have one group over here, they're going to buy Jif. Another group over here, they want to save money but they're also buying your product. Typically, you only find out the manufacturer of a private label brand during a product recall. Other times, it's virtually impossible to determine who actually makes what. And Jay, still, while some private label items are made by big-name manufacturers, others are not, and can taste, well, like a generic brand seems like it should taste. Like back to the uh, Dr. Perky, I'm going to guess it's not made by Dr. Pepper, unless it was created by using the instances where the formula just went bad. I think that kind of makes some sense. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe you should give it another shot. It's, it's You're being a little harsh. You know, I, my favorite ones are Mountain, uh, Mountain Dew because the knockoff brands are called like Mountain Lightning and like Mountain Holler and stuff like that. It's like, how close can we get title-wise to the original without like getting sued? So like, what does that look like? And it just makes for hilarious names. Well, and, and some private label companies sell products that are like really, really good. Like Trader Joe's, for example, their stuff is seen as elite. 
It's more expensive than like a Kroger or a Walmart, and it came from a private label manufacturer. Well, it makes sense too. If you're the if you're the brand, you're like, do I want to sell this person's thing that is a company that I'm allowing to sell in my store, or do I want to like? copy their thing and then undercut their price in my store and sell my thing. You getting those those non-name brand Doritos? Ugh, get out of here. They're called like chip triangles. So Dave, both you and I are, I guess you would say picky eaters. I mean, I definitely know what I like and I know what I don't like at this point in my life. I think you're you would definitely describe yourself as a picky eater right like i'm not i'm not stepping over the line by making that statement about you i actually buck back against the (laughs) picky eater title um because i eat a lot more than people give me credit for i'll say pickier than your average person yeah so when you get a burger like what's on it uh not a lot of condiments but it's just meat and cheese though isn't it well not always just meat and cheese (laughs) can maybe put some barbecue sauce on there maybe uh some bacon (laughs) Different kinds of and cheese, th- maybe even it. like a secret sauce. <laughs> I'm not against like a secret sauce. So what is like an experience that you've had where somebody put something in front of you that you really did not want to eat, but you just sort of knew that you had to, you just had to go for it. Well, I do hate mayonnaise. Okay. And uh, when I was in high school, I was really into video editing for a while. So I was trying to learn how to like get better at video editing. And I knew this guy that had a video editing company. And he said, hey, you can come over to my house. I'll show you my software. I'll teach you how to do it. So I, uh, I came over to his house, and he showed me all this stuff. And his wife, being really nice, came in and said, hey, I'm going to make you guys some lunch. <laughs> and she brings in some sandwiches, just, just swimming in mayonnaise, man. I mean, just like take your normal <laughs> amount of mayonnaise and double it on this. So I thought, there's no way I can eat this, but I've got to do something with it. So as he's editing... I quickly wrapped it in a paper towel and put it in my pocket. <laughs> the sandwich or the, the bread? Sandwich, the sandwich in my the whole sandwich. I put the, the whole sandwich in my sandwich. pocket to make it Yeah, to make it appear <laughs> that I had eaten it. And his wife came back a few minutes later and she said, Oh my gosh, you like really were hungry. It's a good thing I made another one. She brought me another sandwich <laughs> because she thought I ate that one so fast. Hey, good so thing I you got two wrap, pockets. I'm not kidding you. I had to <laughs> So I had to wrap that one up and put it in the other pocket. <laughs> and uh, what was the like? What was the exit plan? I mean, did you get out of the house and like throw them in the garbage? Like, what happened? I got out of there as fast as possible, and uh, yeah, I drove to like a convenience store, threw them away, and then immediately had to wash those pants. Picture you like trying to flush them down the toilet and like clogging the toilet and panicking or something <laughs> like that. Oh, you got to think on your feet. That's the name of the game. You got to think on your feet. (laughs) Well, Dave, there are opportunities to eat rare food. And then there are once in a human lifetime opportunities to eat something. And so in 1981, gold miners in Alaska noticed that a hydraulic mining hose had melted a portion of ice, revealing some sort of animal that had been frozen in the earth. They called up the nearby University of Alaska Fairbanks to report what they had found, which led paleontologist Dale Guthrie to the site where he dug out the rest of the frozen animal, a huge bison that he referred to as Blue Babe. It took some time to thaw it out, but once they had, they had something pretty remarkable. Blue Babe was actually an ancient bison and had died sometime around 50 to 55,000 years ago. Claw marks on its neck suggested that it had been killed by an early ancestor of the lion. Because of the fact that after it died, it froze, it was wildly well-preserved. Its muscle tissue retained texture. Even its fatty skin and bone marrow was intact. 
So Guthrie and his team had an idea. Why don't we try to eat it? Now, it's important to mention that this is not the first time a paleontologist has eaten an ancient animal, as Guthrie himself pointed out, saying all of us working on this thing had heard the tales of the Russians who excavated things like bison and mammoth in the far north that were frozen enough to eat. So we decided, you know what we can do? Make a meal using this bison. So Dave Guthrie put together a dinner party, inviting a couple co-workers, his friend who was a taxidermist, and others for a total of eight people. Now, Dave, you don't want to just straight up grab a chunk of meat off and go for it. For one, even though it may be well-preserved, it's probably not going to taste very good. So Guthrie got creative, pulling off meat, but cooking it into a stew with a healthy amount of garlic and onions, carrots, potatoes, and of course, served with a side of wine. And the dinner that was 50,000 years in the making was served. Now, although you may think, hey, there's no way this actually turned out, Well, you'd be mistaken. Guthrie himself put it this way. It tasted a little bit like what I would have expected with a little bit of ring of mud, he says. But it wasn't that bad. Not so bad that we couldn't each have a bowl. Now today, Dave, you can actually see Blue Babe, missing neck meat and all, on display at the University of Alaska Museum of the North, an animal found under a unique set of circumstances that led to one of the most unique meals in history. What a weird thing to want to do. Am I wrong? Like, why why would that be one of the first thoughts of, this is awesome, let's eat it? I mean, you know, it's like you just sitting around with friends and you're like, you know, it'd be funny. And then you come up with an idea. It's like one of those. You know what? That's why you have to have people who can tell you the truth. And then, like, yeah, yeah, that would be hilarious. We're not going to do it, obviously. You're like, but. Does does he get food poisoning? I I bet you, I bet you there's probably no reporting on this, but I bet you they all got sick. I'd be almost more afraid of like ingesting like an ancient microorganism that like we've forgotten about. It's so gross. It's like a Fear Factor thing. You know what's? Did you ever watch Fear Factor when it was on? Uh, a little bit. I don't know if this is just like a Samsung channel or what, but there's a channel that shows Fear Factor still today all the time. Oh yeah, and uh, for a while, I don't know how I don't know how my TV got on this setting. For a while, when I would turn on the TV. It would automatically boot up on this Fear Factor channel. Like I couldn't stop it. <laughs> so it's like at any time of day, you turn the TV on, and it's Joe Rogan and these people, and they're eating like bull testicles. <laughs> Nasty. <laughs> Trying to get out of there like as like fast as possible. All over. Oh, yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> horrible. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Trapp. We'll see you next week. So we went to this hotel, and it's one of those hotels that, that doesn't have a parking lot. So you have to pay for valet parking. It's either you pay for valet parking or you go park somewhere, like who knows, in the city and just have to go find your car. Right. So you pay for the valet parking. We get down there, and when you're going to pick up your car, you text the valet number like five or ten minutes before you leave. Like, hey, I'm coming, and they go get your car. That's how it, it always works. So I do it this morning, and I always do it a little bit early, you know, because I'm thinking like, yeah, I don't trust the five-minute thing. makes total sense that you would do that. Yep, so I text it, give them, give them a little extra time, get down there. The lobby's full of people. Okay, so it snowed last night, like an inch or two, and I guess it got, like, all the cars have snow and ice on them, and so this one valet dude is way behind trying to get these cars.
<laughs> so like we're talking people have been waiting like an hour plus for and you call. know he just doesn't have an ice scraper so, sitting around like you, you know he's like grabbing no, no, he's no. using like a sock or something to try to wipe it off like and so i i just think well in these kind of situations either you get mad or you do something about it you know so i go over to him and i'm like dude i'll just go get my car like if you give me my key i'll just go, go wherever the cars are if you just point to it i'll go find my car and you don't have to go get it and he was like, I mean, yeah, that's fine, but you have to scrape off a bunch of cars because we'll have to move cars to get your car. <laughs> and I was like, I'll do, yeah, that's, that's cool. That's fine. So I go, I follow him out to the, the lot, and he's, there's like a bunch of cars blocking my car. It's freezing cold. There's snow on all the cars. So I proceed to clean off all these cars. Approximately how long did this take you to, to do? <laughs> I'd say it, it felt like forever, but it was probably about 20 minutes because my hands were freezing because I didn't have any gloves. I, I'll tell you what was crazy, though, because seriously, all these people are mad. They're in the lobby, and I asked the guy, do people ever do this? Like, has anyone ever asked you, I'll just go get my car? And he said, never. <laughs> I'm the, apparently, I'm the first person that's ever said, hey, valet guy, I'll just go get my own car. <laughs> 